You've probably never heard the name Donald James Ross. If you've ever played a game of golf in Florida, however, it's highly likely that you've played on a course that he designed. Let's say you've never played a game of golf like myself. It's extremely likely still that you have seen one of Ross's courses in your hometown or in your neighborhood or along the highways as you drive along. According to the Ross Society, which is dedicated to preserving the history and legacy of that famous architect, there are about 400 of his courses in the United States alone, and 44 of those are in the state of Florida. Whether you've heard his name or not doesn't matter. You have seen his work. Ross was born in 1872 in Darnock, Scotland. The game of golf was originated in Scotland in the 1400s, so the young man grew up surrounded by the game. He was a professional golfer as well as a greenskeeper, developing the courses he wished to play upon. As he grew up, Donald Ross became adept in the ways of golf, not just as a sport, but as a feat of engineering, architecture, and design. When an opportunity came for him to bring his skills to America around the turn of the century, he took it and traveled to Boston where he took up design and greenskeeping at the Oakley Country Club. The course was going under reconstruction, but their old designer passed away before he could finish. The design was thrust upon Donald Ross, who had no experience in the field up until now. His redesign was, of course, a success and effectively changed his life. He spent the next decade not only redesigning the course and picking up new contracts, but also competing in dozens of opens and championships, gaining quite a reputation for himself in the community. And it is during that time that Ross picked up a contract in Florida, where he was commissioned to redesign what is now considered the oldest golf course in Florida, the Bel Air Country Club. Originally constructed by Henry Plant as part of his railroad system, the Bel Air Country Club sits just south of Clearwater with views out to the western part of the Intracoastal Waterway. In 1897, before Ross even moved to America, the Bel Air Country Club constructed six holes with surfaces made up of, quote-unquote, crushed seashells. The club went through various forms of change, with those original courses eventually being destroyed, new holes being put up, fresh grass being integrated into the land, until eventually, in 1915, a brand new set of 18 holes was added to the previous 18. This new second course was designed by Donald Ross. To this day, much of those Ross layouts are still in place with only a few modern tweaks to their arrangement. Today, you can see Ross's courses across the state from the Miami Country Club to the Palm Beach Country Club to the Country Club of Orlando to the Sarasota Golf and Country Club. The Seminole Golf Club in Juneau Beach, which is considered the best course in Florida, was constructed by Ross. His impact on Florida was not in a huge quantity of courses. Rather, he had the honor of constructing many cities' official golf courses, the ones at the focal points of their towns. His 44 courses look paltry, however, in the face of the sheer amount of golf courses in Florida. Brace yourself. Across the state, there are 1,250 golf courses. We have more golf courses than any other state in the country. California is behind us by a few hundred. The impact of Donald Ross looks meager in the face of that number. His work makes up about 4% of all of the courses statewide. Now, that's a lot of land, a lot of natural green that is living integrated with the cultivated ecosystem of these courses. 
For decades, the courses have maintained a tentative balance. But what happens when the courses fall apart? What happens to that balance when a course closes, when nature returns, and when a former golf community hopes for more? I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, cranes, courses, and communities. How golf has changed Florida, and how Florida is changing golf. Have you ever heard the call of a sandhill crane? It is probably my least favorite animal sound in the world, at least the ones I've heard in the wild. The tall raptor-like bird that walks its way through the open fields of Florida makes a sound so loud, so shrill, so primordial that I can almost hear its dinosaur ancestors echoing from their slim beaks. Listen. Call me a little dramatic, but the sound that these birds make absolutely haunts me. They are so beautiful, with smooth gray feathers and tall legs. The crest of their little cranium has a shock of crimson feathers that make them immediately recognizable at any distance. They move in groups along roadways and upon open swaths of land, often at dawn or dusk, stalking along the grass and occasionally stopping to dip their sharp beaks into the soil beneath their feet, plucking for grubs as they make their way along. When they fly, these massive wings unfold from around their bodies and carry them in an almost impossible fashion into the air, diligently flapping as they ascend into the sky. They're simple and charming, not showy or aggressive. All cranes, but especially these, have a presence to them. You have to respect them. Sometimes you just have to sit and watch them go. And then, in the silence, they open their beaks and they make that awful awful sound. Maybe it doesn't bother you. Maybe it's not a problem. I understand. But something about the trilling high tone of their call just activates the caveman part of my brain. They, like most animals, use their call for a variety of reasons, including gathering their chicks or even when the birds are concerned. They use their calls to warn other cranes about their territory claim and to announce their arrival when they come swooping in for a landing. Sometimes birds call on their own with that loud chirp, and sometimes they call in a chorus, echoing after one another, creating a never-ending trill of sound. With spring around the corner, it's likely that we may be hearing the cranes more than usual. And to make it worse, their call can be heard from two and a half miles away. I wanted to know more about these birds. Why do they do the things they do? Why do they make that sound? So I spoke with Dr. Paul Gray of Florida Audubon, and he informed me that not only do the birds make this extremely unique sound, their bodies do an extremely unique alteration in order to generate such a noise. Okay, so you know how when you eat a chicken breast, there, there's a keel, the, the bone in the middle of the chicken breast? Yes. Okay, in a sandhill crane, the trachea goes into that keel, and it's so it's like a quarter inch wide or a half inch wide, and it does a big loop around, and it so it makes it longer. It gives it more room in, in their chest to have a longer trachea. That's part of the reason that they are so loud. Wow! So they just like expand their their like expand their ability to make sound, and that's where that comes from. 
Yeah, so Google up the sandhill crane trachea, and, you, and they'll show you diagrams of how it curls around inside the breastbone of the bird and comes back out, and that makes it longer and gives them that more amplification. I followed Dr. Gray's instructions, and the image is horrifying. The trachea contorts, kind of twisting itself into a little internal pretzel. I had no doubt of Dr. Gray's expertise, by the way. He is the Everglades Science Coordinator for Audubon, Florida. His office is based out of a town northwest of Lake Okeechobee in south-central Florida. He has a PhD and he uses his expertise in birds, animals, and Florida's ecosystem to help protect the state. So I'm a, I'm a staff scientist, but I work in our policy program. And what I do is I help the team with the numbers, you know, what's the situation, how's it work, um, what's going on now, where do we need to get to, and then they help to try to figure out if we need to pass laws or rules or talk to officials and, and, you know, change the way things are done, you know, to try to make things better. So I'm basically the, the scientist behind our policy team. He has worked on many projects to make things better, including in protecting lands in Florida from increased dumping or pollution. When asked about how his work relates to the birds of Florida, he gave the exact answer you'd hope from a scientist who works for the Audubon Society. Well, in the end, everything is related to the birds. As for the sandhill cranes, he specifies that there are actually two kinds in Florida. There are sandhill cranes, which is a broad-ranging species that lives across the country but migrates south to here for the winter. And then there's the Florida sandhill crane. Florida sandhill crane is one of five endemic prairie birds that we have here in central Florida. And endemic means they're a unique subspecies found nowhere else in the world. And um, so they're a bird of, of quite a bit of focus. Actually, I'm out on a ranch right now, and I'm four of them just landed in the pond next to me. They are called prairie birds because that is the sort of ecosystem they tend to gravitate towards, using their long necks and piercing beaks to break the surface of the grass beneath their feet and scavenge for grubs. They feed on grubs and they feed on uh, like the roots of plants, they'll eat the tubers of the plants. Uh, we're used to eating potatoes and things like that and, and that's what they're searching for when they dig up uh, the ground. You'll, you'll see places where they've rooted around and dug up a bunch of stuff and, and they're just eating that stuff under the ground. They'll opportunistically eat little animals, they'll eat insects, they'll eat uh, lizards, they'll eat moles, and uh, just all kinds of stuff. They are technically a subspecies of that larger sandhill crane species, and while they are very similar to each other, the Floridian varietal has a few key differences. There's a lot of behavioral differences. Uh, for one, Florida sandhill cranes don't travel around in large flocks normally. Um, you usually see them just as a little family group. Uh, they almost never fly higher than a telephone line. Um, and so this time of year, you'll see cranes flying at 500 feet high. Those are invariably the migrants. <laughs> they even raise their babies differently. If you remember the whooping crane um, reintroduction efforts, what they would do is they would take one of the eggs out of the whooping crane nest because they almost always lay two eggs, but they almost always raise one chick. And that's because they lay their first egg and they start incubating and they don't lay their second egg until a couple days later. And then it starts incubating, and so the second egg hatches a day or two later than the first egg. And most cranes in the world will leave the nest and ball that first baby and leave the egg behind. And sandhill cranes don't do that. They, they, they lay their eggs sequentially like that, but when one baby leaves the nest, usually one parent goes with it, the other one stays on the nest and incubates the egg. And so it's kind of unusual that Florida sandhill cranes raise both their babies. Reliable parents, those sandhill cranes. Biologists and scientists have yet to precisely pin down why Florida sandhill cranes have developed this unique evolutionary trait. They just do.
We don't know exactly why they call out the way they do. We don't know exactly why they raise their babies the way they do. And we don't exactly know why, as environments are lost and shifted, the cranes are barely affected. Their adaptability is what really, I think, is going to make them be able to persist in Florida. Um, as you know, they, they live out in the wilds. They live in your neighborhood. They live on a golf course. They, <laughs> if people move in, they don't have to move out. They can still make it. And so, you know, that ability to make it with human changes is, is really great. And I mentioned five endemic prairie birds. One of them is the Florida grasshopper sparrow. And it is very, very sensitive to human changes. And it only lives in the dry prairie ecosystem. And, and it's very, very highly endangered because as humans change their 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 original habitat they just can't live in human altered habitats so the sandhill crane is kind of on the other end of that spectrum where it seems like almost anything we do they're just fine they can walk around the airport or walk around the park or, or walk around the golf course or, or you know up your neighborhood street and, and and you know it's kind of weird to see these wild animals doing that but if they can thrive that way then that's that's good they adapt which, of course, brings us back to our golf courses. I'll remind you, there are 1,250 courses in Florida, miles upon miles of cultivated grass, wide open, ripe with grub, and tubers and lizards. Golf courses are crane buffets for both the snowbirds and the locals alike. Now, sometimes in research, you find a piece of information that is so profoundly bizarre, so delightfully niche and hyper-specific that it almost feels like someone, somewhere, has left this little gift for you to discover, this little treasure. In my case, it's in the form of an article from the Florida State Golf Association. I cannot seem to find the author of this brilliant article, but here is its headline, and I quote, Sandhill cranes can sure make a mess of a golf course, exclamation mark. According to this article, there is a rule in golf known as the abnormal ground conditions rule. In this rule, according to the U.S. Golf Association, a player can move the position of their ball on the course if it is in a dangerous or abnormal position. This does not include normal hazards on courses like the sand trap or a water hazard, but includes such things as repair on the courses, standing water from rain, or holes created by animals, basically anything that a golfer cannot prepare for or expect. Now, because cranes dig through the ground for food, the holes created by the cranes make them fit under the umbrella of the abnormal ground conditions rule. So if you see sandhill cranes on your course and you see holes in the grass, you can use the abnormal ground conditions rule to get a slight edge. And as Dr. Gray said, those birds are frequent visitors to courses. They live on golf courses. They are open enough for sandhill cranes to make their home. And these cranes, both our local Floridian birds and our visitors from the north, have found more and more land to pick up residents and call their home, especially on golf courses, undisturbed. This is because more and more golf courses are struggling to keep up funds, with money being poured into courses that receive fewer visitors. The bottom is starting to fall out. In 2018, the news press based out of Fort Myers found that over the previous five years, municipal courses lost almost $100 million. The courses eventually stopped making profit, spending more on average than they got from those who visited. It gets worse in the summer when our own migratory residents who made their way from northern states to hide from the cold eventually return to their homes. It's a problem that is happening nationally as more courses find survival impossible, but our bubble may be soon to pop. 
that's going to leave a lot of snowbirds with nowhere to golf and leave a lot of open land ready to be reclaimed by Florida nature. The first to take up residence, I'm sure, will be our friends, the Sandhill Cranes. It's even happening in my hometown. Between where I live and my high school by the Greyhound track, there's a neighborhood called Rolling Hills. There are only a handful of golf courses in Seminole County, and up until 2014, Rolling Hills was one. It's a rare type of course, though one you see more in the suburban areas of our state. It's not hidden away from the public in a private gated community. It's smack in the middle of a sprawling series of homes and cul-de-sacs off the main business routes in town. When I was younger, other kids I knew who lived in the neighborhood would often report their windows being blasted to pieces as an errant shot came exploding into their living room, leaving a pile of shattered glass and a singular golf ball in the middle of the room. The course itself was originally built in 1926, the only thing in this relatively sparse area of central Florida. The neighborhood sprouted up around the course and brought in residents who enjoyed the ease of strolling right onto their course. The same decline that came to other courses came for Rolling Hills. It was sold and permanently closed in 2014, leaving the grass to grow over, the buildings to be left abandoned, and the neighborhood wondering what comes next for their former glorious course. Some of the holes are just mere feet from homes. They are interconnected like muscles and bones, and this shift left a void. Whenever I drove past, all I noticed was the jungle-like fairways and the collections of sandhill cranes tracking their way over the grass. From the start, the, the concept was if the county was interested in purchasing this property, we would still like to develop this as a passive park site. That is Richard Durr. He is the director of the Leisure Services Department in Seminole County, where he has worked for almost eight years. His background is in landscape architecture, and when the Rolling Hills Golf Course closed, Durr and his team noticed an opportunity. They had been given a grant by the state to develop what is known as a passive park. An active park is one that includes higher development with more activity-specific structures such as sports fields or playgrounds. In passive parks, the idea is that there are spaces available for one to do what they please, open fields, picnic areas, and trails of all variety. The county had tried for years to develop a passive park but hadn't found the right area until Rolling Hills came on the market. They bought the land. The property itself, and as it is today, is completely surrounded by and fronted by public streets. Well, if the county is interested in making this a public park, it's a lot easier to, to grant public access where you have a property that's completely surrounded by public streets as opposed to one that's, say, maybe behind a gate. Uh, how do you create a public park behind somebody else's private gate? That's really difficult <laughs> to do. Sure. It took about four years of Durr's life, but he did the research, uncovered the history, and led the county to a moment where this abandoned golf course could enter a new stage of its life. Development needed to be done to ensure the land was viable for public use after sitting empty for years. As part of the contingency of, of us, or the, excuse me, the conditions of the county purchasing the property, is once the county purchases the property, we need to clean it up. So we were able to work with an environmental uh, scientist group they figured out how much it was going to cost. And at that point, the county said, we really don't have a million and a half more dollars on top of that just to do the cleanup, just to get us to square one with creating a public park. That was, I want to say, the beginning of January of 2018. Um, 
at that moment, the community showed up en masse to a county commission meeting and said, we will be happy to tax ourselves to clean up the soil if you're willing to move forward with this as a park project. Durr's team needed more money, and the community around the course rallied and said to their county, we will pay for it. You all can vote for this. Um, the trick is, though, is that you needed about two-thirds of everybody to say yes. And the reality of it is, is that if you don't vote, that counts as a no. So it was very, very uh, important that the neighborhood, if they wanted this to happen, to basically get out the vote. They had 30 days to vote. There were neighbors within the neighborhood that every weekend walked door to door to make sure that people were filling out their ballot and were sending it back to the county. They needed 65% approval, and they got 76. Uh, in late 2018, the county purchased the property for just over $4 million. In Richard's words, the county went full speed ahead from there. Within a few months, groundwater was being tested, the grass was being mowed regularly, ponds were being cleaned, and wetland foliage was being planted on the shores. We had 52 people show up on a rainy Saturday morning to go and pluck uh, grasses in a hole. Um, and they were all, mostly all from that neighborhood. So we had a lot of folks that were putting even now their sweat equity into this. Now, they're developing a trail using the structure set up by the golf cart trail, but making it more accessible so it fits ADA standards. They're working with scientists to do gardening on the property and to offer classes for residents to get involved. They're hoping to open community gardens, including a pollinator garden. They're developing something called a boundless playground on property, which will be accessible to children of all abilities right in the middle of the neighborhood. Uh, this is a, uh, quite honestly, it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime project. Um, they, they, they just don't make a lot of these. <laughs> so finding a project like this one, um, that as a, as a landscape architect and as a park planner, um, it, it's absolutely amazing uh, that I, I'm here at the right time um, to be able to uh, not just from a personal standpoint, an enormous uh, uh, amount of satisfaction, personal satisfaction, professional satisfaction, but to be able to work with a neighborhood like this that has put their own skin in the game, um, it, it's it just incredibly gratifying. Um, from the day that the county purchased the property, uh, every time out on site, um, you practically have someone driving by and rolling their windows down and just saying thank you. Uh, it's just an absolutely incredible to see how something like this can just continue to bring a, a neighborhood together. The story of Rolling Hills is a rare one, but it's not unprecedented. Seminole County is using several similar projects as examples, including another course recycled into a public park in Miami. It's an amazing thing when something like this project exists. It's almost a miracle, but Florida has a way to be adaptable just like our cranes. Things change around us, tides we cannot control, and even when the snowbirds return north, the locals hunker down and survive. We take what's there, something we have lost, and we make something important out of it, something we all need, something that matters. It's rare, the stars aligning the way they did here, but they did. And now this place, which has returned to the birds, will be a place for them and us to enjoy together. 
Which reminds me, Dr. Gray from Florida Audubon taught me something about the bird calls. Yeah, and one more thing is look up their duet calling. Um, oh, the, where they the, call together? Yeah. Oh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so the male will, will be calling and he'll make a call and then she'll make a call and he'll make a call and she'll make a call. I've heard that sound many, many, many times. That I never, I never realized that it was a a partner thing. It was a a, 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 a like a literal life mate sound that they were making. Yeah, they're singing a duet. They're intentionally doing it together. So it's not just the male singing to protect the territory or their whatever. This is both of them doing it together. So that echoing call that repeats back and forth, they're not just calling. They are singing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. Might I recommend some episodes similar to this one, like July's episode about the Black Skimmer, or October's tale of the murder of Guy Bradley. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it brightens up my day. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Dr. Paul Gray from Florida Audubon. You can read more of his work at the link below. He and I recommend you support Audubon Florida. I'd also like to thank Richard Durr from Seminole County. He has some advice on how you can help projects like his come to pass in your town. These things happen because of neighbors that are energized to make a difference and they see an opportunity and they they get involved and they go to their community leaders and say, not just uh, how, how you can help us, but how can we help you? You can read more about the history of golf in Florida and our Sandhill Cranes at the links below. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her art at lauren.nix.photo. Nix is spelt N-I-X. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. I'll see you next Monday with a brand new episode. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. And please, drink more water. Have a good week.